Tell me your teeth. Show me your teeth. Tell me when. Show me your teeth. Open your mouth, boy. Show me your teeth. Show me what you got. Show me your teeth. Hi, everyone. I'm Alicia Halliday. I'm the host of the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. I'm glad you joined us today because we have very special guests that wrote and published a paper that I think of as like one of those rare unicorns and not in a bad way, where it combines something that families really need studied in a very rigorous way. I want to introduce you to our three guests. Um, the first is Rachel Fenning. She is an associate professor at Cal State Fullerton and works extensively with families with autism. Also Kelly Birmingham, who is an internationally renowned expert in applied behavioral analysis and has helped numerous, numerous families and also has a podcast of her own that I'll let her tell us about. And Eric Butter, who is at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Um, you guys, please int uh, introduce yourselves and maybe we'll do it in alphabetical order. So Kelly, do you wanna introduce yourself first? Yeah, I'm Kelly. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I'm currently serving as the senior vice president at People's Care Behavioral Health. We are um, part of the Redwood Care Family Network. And um, I have sort of become dubbed as the practical BCBA. I like to train and talk about things that are very practical for families and make but make substantial uh, changes and improvements in their quality of life. And certainly dental care is one of them. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And Dr. Butter. Sure. Hi everyone. Um, I am at Nationwide Children's Hospital, one of the sites in the Autism Speaks Autism Care Network. And I, I have a history of doing research in um, treatments for autism and like Kelly, very interested in things that are immediately um, uh, valuable to families. And it was really exciting to participate in this research with Kelly and, and Rachel and, and, and a real um, wonderful opportunity, Alicia, that you're doing this podcast with us today to get the news out about our research. So, so thank you for, for bringing us together. Thank you. And last but not least is uh, Dr. Fenning. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel. I'm at Cal State Fullerton, where I'm also one of the founding co-directors of our Center for Autism there. I'm also affiliated with the University of California, Irvine Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders, which is also part of the Autism Speaks Autism Care Network. Uh, and one of my lines of research, I have a few, but one of my lines of research is really focused on the development of tests and testing of interventions to promote adaptive behavior, health, and well-being in children with autism and their families. And so thank you again, Alicia, for giving us the opportunity. We're so excited to share this work. And we also just want to acknowledge that there are, although there are three of us here today to represent this project, this was a tremendous collaborative team endeavor. And so we also want to thank all of our colleagues, collaborators, and the families who made this work possible um, as we head into sharing what we found. And I don't know if I mentioned it in my introduction, but this is a study that looks at um, dental care in people with autism. And we'll talk about the specifics of it in a minute, but why is this important? What are some of the issues that individuals with autism have around dental care? 
Yeah, I can jump in with that one. I right. think it's a great question. Um, you know, dental care is one of the most common unmet healthcare needs for children in general, and it poses a particular challenge for children with ASD. Children with ASD relative to children without the diagnosis tend to exhibit greater distress during dental care, have increased difficulty participating in dental hygiene activities and routine dental office visits. And although there are multiple factors that likely contribute to these challenges, including systemic barriers, which are certainly exacerbated for families from underserved and underrepresented backgrounds, as well as children's presenting developmental and behavioral characteristics. There's less that is known about how we can intervene to promote these routine daily hygiene behaviors that we know are so closely tied to oral health. And that's really important for children with ASD because there's there are a number of studies to suggest that this population may be at heightened risk for oral health problems, things like dental plaque, and cavities, which can affect other aspects of health and well-being. Uh, Rachel, you're always so um, uh, complete. I, I don't know what to add to that, you know, but it, it does, um, you know, for me, Alicia, when we were thinking about the next study that needed to be done in autism, we heard from families that, that dental care was challenging for them and that, um, and a lot of this is anecdotal. Rachel actually um, did a really good job of, of finding every study that was ever done out there in oral health and autism. Um, uh, but what the most compelling things wasn't the prior science. The most compelling stories that we were hearing were from families. And some of those families that are a part of, of our autism care network were telling us, I can't get my kid to the dentist. I'm worried about whether they'll have teeth when they grow up. Um, and we thought we gotta be able to do something and, and science has to have an answer. And when we looked at this, we said, okay, what will um, help um, children with autism have teeth when they grow up? And you know, we, 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 we sort of settled on this idea that everyday care is important. You know, what happens at home, getting kids to cooperate and comply with brushing their teeth. And, and we had a real champion for this in, in the project, um, Dr. Steinberg uh, was really focused on making sure that kids could get to the dentist and sit in the chair and participate in an oral exam. So we'll probably tell you more about that as, as we move through the conversation today. But I, I just wanted to, to add that it, this is really inspired by parents' stories and journeys and fears. Thank you. And speaking of parents, um, I can think of logical reasons why parent training would be important for dental care. So, um, Tell me about how you conceptualize parents being involved in this. Yeah, I can start us off on this one. You know, one of the things from looking at the literature that we could see is that many of the interventions that exist related to dental care involve dental office specific interventions. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was to really address these daily health behaviors that we think are so key. And to do that, we turned to the literature on parent training. Many of us have been involved clinically and from a research perspective in working in that aspect of the field for quite some time. And so there's a lot of evidence that parent training, that 
interventions that center on parents as the critical agents of change can be helpful in addressing a whole range of symptoms and needs in children both with and without ASD. And there were several studies that pointed to parent training as a beneficial approach for enhancing adaptive behavior in these activities of daily living. So as we thought about dental care and the fundamental role that parents play in promoting dental hygiene and health for all children, this really led us to think of parenting parent training as a flexible and viable approach for improving dental care in children with ASD. Kelly, would you like to add to that? You work with families, um, parents, kids across the age range. Sure. Um, I, I second everything that Rachel was saying. Um, I think that, you know, we know that raising a child with autism is very stressful. Um, these parents have tremendous stress in their life. Um, and, you know, if anyone's heard me, uh, that, you know, I talk about this and that parents will just say, I want my child to be happy and healthy and safe. Right. And so with that, you know, oral care is super important. Imagine the feeling a parent has when they know they can't get their child to brush their teeth and they know that they have not ever brought their child to the dentist, like that burden and that stress weighs heavily on a parent and, and being able to help increase a parent's feeling of competency around this topic, right? That they're, they, they feel they have some competence. They feel confident that in itself is, is tremendously important to help reduce their stress. And it also makes sense that the parents are involved in this because they're the ones that are going to continue on with the process. Yeah, you're, you're reminding me too, Kelly, the importance of, of what this does for parents. Yeah. Um, that, you know, one thing we know is that raising an extraordinary child um, can, can be challenging at times. And uh, many, many days are tough. Um, we know that parents with children with autism experience a significant amount more parenting stress than other parents do um, when they aren't raising a child with autism. Um, added to that, every day you wake up to um, challenges that are tough to meet. And if you don't know how to meet them, like just brushing your child's teeth, you, you don't feel like you're doing your job as a mm -hmm. mom. And what happens when you take time to break it down, to think about it, to learn a new way of doing it, to learn a new way of getting through the challenges, you start to rebuild confidence. Um, parents start to feel like they can do things that um, they should be able to do, uh, but now they have the skills to actually feel accomplished in doing it. Psychologists call this efficacy, um, and, and what it does is it does a lot more, we think, than just help parents brush their teeth. It helps them reduce their everyday stress. It helps them even feel more confident in doing other things that might be challenging. Uh, and so giving parents some success with an important daily task um, we think has lots of wins. It, it, for us, it feels like a, a, a pivotal opportunity for parents to have a, a new window on managing stress and on feeling like they can take care of their children the way they want to. And I think we'll likely build on that in just a moment when we talk in more detail about some of the ingredients of our intervention. Um, but one of the other things we I think would be helpful to add is as a modality, parent training is also 
co relatively cost effective. It can also be time limited and it has the potential to be deployed across a variety of contexts and by a range of healthcare professionals. So we think that it is accessible on a lot of different levels and provides a mechanism for delivering treatment that might be relatively easily disseminated. Yes, I've, I've talked about, I'm a big fan of, of parent implemented interventions because they're just more, a lot of times they're just more practical. Um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't even thinking about, you know, parent efficacy, even though I agree I'm, I'm a parent too. And I agree that would play a big role, but I was just, I normally just think of like, who is going to, who, who's around when a child brushes their teeth? It's not the clinician. I mean, it could be, I guess if, but it's mostly the, the family or the caregivers or the parents. So it makes the most sense logistically. So the other thing you guys did was a randomized clinical trial design. And um, this is considered, you know, this, this is considered it. Once you've passed the RCT, um, it, 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 show, it, it shows whether it really does work or not. So can you describe what an RCT is and what the two groups were and a little bit about the intervention? And um, Dr. Fenning, we'll start with you and then um, other people can join in. Sure, sure. So one of the things that an RCT can do is provide a really stringent test of intervention efficacy. And this involves randomly assigning participants to receive one of several interventions. In our study, families were randomized to receive either parent training as an intervention or to our active psychoeducational comparator, which we refer to as our dental toolkit. So this is important because we didn't compare to a control group alone. We actually had intervention ingredients in our comparison. So it's a really stringent test of the efficacy of our parent training approach. And our dental toolkit condition included a family-friendly psychoeducational resource that was designed to provide parents with information about dental hygiene and dental office visits. We also provided families with dental hygiene supplies, including an electric toothbrush, which was, which was designed to support plaque reduction, but also to provide practice with tools that were similar to those used at a dental office. And we provided a six month supply of dental hygiene materials like toothbrush heads, toothpaste and flossers, as well as other mock dental tools. So there is a lot that was included in our dental toolkit comparator. Families that were participating in our parent training curriculum received all components of the dental toolkit, as well as on our novel parent training intervention. This intervention involves seven core in-person sessions, which included a home visit, as well as a dental office coaching session, and four phone boosters. And one of those phone boosters could be converted to an optional home visit or home coaching session as well. And that was based upon the discretion of the therapist and the family together. Our intervention content generally centered on psychoeducation about dental hygiene and dental health, as well as instruction and behavioral techniques designed to reduce dental fear and promote participation in dental care activities. And additionally, we provided supplemental supports to families, including a study library of video models, which we spent a lot of time on, um, social stories and parent handouts. And I think the other thing that 
we'd like to talk a little bit about as part of our intervention is the level of effort and attention that we devoted to considering ways we could create a program that would be responsive to the diverse needs of our families. We really wanted to create a program that would be aligned with lived expertise. So toward that end, we adopted a participatory research approach and we involved multiple parents and individuals with ASD on our study team. We also utilize community-based focus groups of families matching our target child demographics to inform and refine our study design measures and the actual intervention itself. And last but certainly not least, we threaded engagement interventions throughout because we really wanted to optimize parent engagement and intervention uptake. And there were a lot of different ingredients that were embedded in these engagement interventions that were really targeting practical and logistical barriers, as well as some of the psychological factors that we know play a role when parents are engaging in parent training intervention. Kelly, would you elaborate a little bit about that? I was going to, except whenever <laughs> Rachel's so eloquent when she speaks that I always feel like I just come in and sort of like, oh no, I feel like I'm tripping over my words, honestly. I, we I have always, two seasoned podcasters here and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I feel like I just come in and then muddy up the words. So um, I, I, in a, you know, I'll say I'm not, I'm not a researcher. Everyone knows I'm not a researcher, but I, I vividly recall when we were putting this t thing together. And again, we can't say enough about um, uh, Dr. Epstein who's not here with us right now as part of this project, but it was super important for us in doing a randomized control trial that we did add in a component that the control group also had a level of intervention. Like I just remember that conversation we had over and over again saying, let's make sure everyone benefits from this. And so I, that to me stood out as something that was super unique to this project. Yeah, you know, and I, I'll chime in maybe as someone who's done parent training research here for 25 years. And um, my real joy in this project, well, I had many joys and, 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 you know, but, but one joy was working with Rachel and Kelly and their focus on parent engagement in, in a way that, that we hadn't focused or operationalized, um, really structured in any of our prior parent training studies. You know, I earlier, Alicia, you, you talked about the RCT being the the creme de la creme of, of science. And once you, once you get a good RCT and you have sound effects from a study, you know that the treatment works. The trouble is it works under these really highly refined conditions of our scientific environment. Um, uh, and we don't know if it's gonna work in the real world and, and, and with, with families um, who are um, struggling with um, all the stressors that come with living in our modern world, you know, having uh, you know, multiple jobs, multiple stressors in, 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 in your life, um, more, more than one kid that is bringing you um, joy and challenge every day. Um, in, in the context of, of our research studies, you know, if, if a family really needed us, we figured out how to get to them. You know, there are sometimes we're doing parent training at a local McDonald's or we're doing um, you know, parent training at someone's house. If it, but that doesn't happen in most um, therapeutic context. And, and so 
um, we had to be thoughtful about and what I liked about this study that, that Rachel and Kelly really tried to emphasize from the beginning is let's try to operationalize the things that we do in the rural world um, that um, help families stay engaged in treatment. Um, let's try to operationalize in our manual the things that we do in our study that, that help families more than we might be willing to do in the rural world. And then by operationalizing it, do we then make it more easily adopted by clinicians when our study was done. So we were already thinking about the kind of impact this research could have um, beyond our participants in our randomized clinical trial. We were interested in designing a project that um, took the spirit of what we were doing to help families be really cooperative and, 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 and were able to engage in our treatment um, that removed barriers that could happen um, in anyone's life, but in the context of our treatment, we were quite willing to take time to do that. In past studies that I was involved in, we didn't operationalize those. We didn't write them down. We didn't think about them. We didn't incorporate it into the, 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 the treatment manual. Um, we did that here. We took time to think about how do we engage families and how do we get them to anticipate barriers? How do we get them to think about how do you do this even on a tough day? Um, how do you do this um, even uh, on, on days where you just can't find the energy to do it. Um, that was different in this parent training study than what we've ever done before. And I think it, it not only advances um, this effort and makes it auto automatically more ready for dissemination to, to families, but it, it also, I think, advances our science and parent training. Um, and to, to that, I really credit um, Rachel's leadership and, and Kelly's input. Um, they were very, very um, family-centered in how we put this parent training program together. Yeah, I would like to add that you're that I just want to echo that that actually some of these parent training interventions work to the extent to which the parent knows what they're doing and why they're doing it and sticks to the manual. And sometimes that's harder that or sticks to aim the manual or a manual or instructions. And sometimes that's harder, um, not just for some families in general, but also in other situations. And so um, you know, I really appreciate that that was, that was carefully looked at. Do you want to provide some, some details about the intervention? Sure, we can, we're, we'd be happy to say a little bit about what we did is along the lines of the engagement interventions that we utilized, we drew heavily from motivational interviewing to address at the very outset of our intervention, parents' goals and shared goal setting with their therapists, their expectations, and to develop a collaborative structured plan for making these changes. We also problem solved with families at the outset about things that they anticipated might be problematic for them about engaging in this treatment. I think another really core element for us was, was trying to think through, and this is where our participatory research design and our engagement of families from the community really benefited us because we were able to think through in a very nuanced way about what it's like to engage with these daily stressors related to their children's dental care. And so to recognize that sometimes when we give parents strategies to utilize, we also have to understand parents' internal experiences about utilizing 
organizing and implementing and maintaining those strategies. We drew heavily from Mark Durand and colleagues in their conceptualization of how one might integrate cognitive behavioral techniques with traditional behavioral techniques in order to really optimize intervention uptake. And so as an example, one of the things that we did was we supported parents in monitoring their own internal states in the context of thinking about behavioral contingencies tied to dental care. We also utilized some mindfulness strategies to help parents anchor in the present moment and to address some of that reactivity that can arise either in anticipation of or in response to really challenging childcare experiences, especially in this case related to dental care. So those were the primary components of our intervention engagement efforts as applied to our specific parent training program, but we had additional practical logistical strategies that were designed for our study as a whole in an effort to retain and engage this particular sample that we knew was historically what had been underserved and was historically underrepresented in the research literature. I'd like to add something to that. And I hope, I hope Eric and Rachel, you don't get mad at me for my level of specificity here, but I'm, it was whatever, everything Rachel said was really what made the, the, the project. Um, but we also, being a little more specific, we broke down all the steps of this process very specifically in our eight-week, eight-session parent training where it was very small, manageable chunks of information that parents had. And I, I, can, I can't say enough about how, as the person who actually delivered the intervention with the families, um, how meaningful it was for the parents to have these small incremental changes that built upon each other um, and the check-in um, on their motivation and how they were feeling. And they just build upon each other so well that as we're, as we're doing this, I'm flooded with this memory of this one particular person in the study, this young man who was um, a young male, nonverbal, in a diaper, never brushed his teeth or been to the dentist. And he got through the study, right? We got his teeth brushed. His mom got his teeth brushed. And just remember the, you know, the tears when she's like, I can't believe we got to do this, right? And so it was this very specific protocol that we developed that built upon it till we got to the certain point and it worked. And so I, every time we talk about this, I'm flooded with those specific situations that happened that made, made it all worth it. Yeah, Kelly, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought this home to something real. The behind the numbers are um, more than a hundred families um, that all have stories just like you described. Um, what is also unique about this study is that we were working with families uh, who are working with far less than many other families. And, and in some ways it's just easier um, and you know, not every family was as successful as every other one, right? That's why that's why there's variability in our in our data, and and so, so for some families, the 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 challenges of everyday life, the car broke down, one parent lost their job, another sibling uh, was having trouble at school, um, there wasn't enough food in the house, um, those other things 
all probably on certain days took a higher priority for our families than brushing their kids' teeth. And so we had to be sensitive to that. We had to help families figure out, okay, if it didn't happen today, how do we help it happen tomorrow? Um, the today's failure does not mean tomorrow has to uh, not be a new day. It is a new day and a new opportunity to try again. Um, and to whatever extent, behavior problems, resistance, um, other challenges that we could help mitigate um, and lessen for you, we will. And by participating in this eight-week therapeutic process, we help families figure out, many families figure out at least, how do you manage all those other stresses um, of growing up in a modern world with less than you need <laughs> um, to get by? Uh, how do you manage all those stresses while still thinking about your kids' oral health and taking effort every day to promote um, better outcomes for your child's teeth? Uh, so uh, Kelly, I really, I'm really glad you brought that, that, that story up. You, you help Rachel and I get behind the numbers all the time. So thank you. One thing I do want to point out, and Dr. Butter just kind of touched on this, is that this study was not done in the same homogenous, white, earns over $200,000 a year sort of families. This study was done in Medicaid eligible families. And so Dr. Butter, would you like to comment about what that means. You kind of already did, but maybe explain a little bit more about why it's important to, to look at real life situations like families who, who do have fewer resources than others. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best here to, to elaborate on why, why this is really important. We, we know that children's and family, children's and families who are really most vulnerable to disparities also tend to be less represented in our research. And so, our um, funder, um, the Health Resources Services Administration, was very committed to us um, doing research in autism on families who were historically um, excluded from research, could not participate in research, in part because they didn't have the resources to do so. Um, hard enough to get your kid to school, get, get to your job, take care of the rest of your family, ra rather than get to a university to participate in a research study. And so we were charged with, from the very beginning, of trying to work toward increasing representativeness of research samples in autism research. And we, we really thought this was really critical to enhancing external validity and generalizability of research. And we thought we could do it in this study. So um, our hope was that um, we would be able to overcome the social demographic variables that um, are typically associated with unmet dental needs um, that we, we would be able to look at the dental health disparities for children um, who are uh, coming from underserved communities. And we thought the best way to do that would be to um, enroll families who were Medicaid eligible. Um, our real point was to prioritize representation in this study, mm -hmm. um, that it wasn't just the families that you were talking about earlier, um, the you know families that are in, fortunate enough to be in an upper income bracket. Still, I don't want to minimize the stress that raising a child with autism has on any family, but we have to acknowledge um, that it's got to be differently stressful for families um, who have less. And in that way, um, we wanted to design a project that, that helped us to um, reach those families and enroll only those families. So it was a tall task. And to be honest with you, a lot of other people passed on doing research in this arena, both in terms of oral health, because it's hard, but also in terms of focusing on recruiting an only underserved population. Rachel, do you want to talk about the ways in which we 
um, really aimed to engage these families and, and do this work with um, families that were um, uh, coming from um, Medicaid eligibility criteria? Sure, sure. So I think part, part of what we did was we drew heavily upon the literature that has been conducted on how do we engage under-resourced and underserved families in general in parent training. And we integrated the lessons learned from those approaches with what we know about our population specific needs. And that led to our our targeted engagement efforts that we've already defined to some degree in terms of what we did in the context of our parent training, but also there were a number of other facets of our approach that were really important. So we attended to some of these sort of practical barriers. Um, Dr. Peter alluded to some of them, right? So we, we viewed providing flexibility in the location of service delivery to be really important in meeting the needs sometimes of families who aren't able to get into a clinic. Um, we also provided lots of opportunities for rescheduling. Some of our families needed multiple times to be able to complete a session, but they would complete the session if we were willing to reschedule multiple times. So I think that there are certain things that we were able to do in the capacity of a research study that is sometimes more difficult to do in everyday practice, but I think our ability to demonstrate the importance really highlights the need to think creatively about how do we build in this flexibility into our community-based services so that we can reach and engage and support these families. I think one of the other things I want to comment on is the other aspect of inclusion that was really important for us was to ensure that we had broad representation among children with ASD. So toward that end in our inclusion criteria, not only did we require Medicaid eligibility, but we specifically did not have any inclusion or exclusion criteria related to children's developmental, intellectual, adaptive behavior functioning, or the presence of challenging behaviors. We really wanted to enroll children that needed us and needed our help, and we would meet them where they were at. Uh, so we have a large proportion of our sample that does also have co-occurring intellectual disability, and the majority of our sample also has clinically significant challenging behaviors. And so that was a population that came to us and that we were working with in the context of this study. So now for the big question, so what was the results? Like, did, did this parent training improve outcomes compared to just the, the education? How did parents feel about it? Yeah, so we were we were very excited. Um, you know, we had really strong retention of our sample. So I don't think we've mentioned this yet. I think we've alluded to rough sample size, but we randomized 119 families of children ages three to 13 with ASD. At our immediate post-treatment follow-up at three months, we have retained 93% of our families, and we retained 90% of our families at our final six-month follow-up. 
We view our ability to not only recruit, but also retain this sample as likely a reflection of the level of interest in and need for dental interventions, as well as the potential benefits of our EMIC approach to our study and intervention design and our consistent and targeted engagement efforts. We also think that our ability to do this work with this sample indicates the feasibility of diversifying research samples and really underscores the imperative of doing so in order to advance this work. So now a little bit about what we actually found from our study. Um, so we're thrilled to be able to report that we achieved our pre-specified primary outcomes of improving twice daily dental hygiene and also improving dental health. To our knowledge, this is the first time an RCT has been conducted and has shown effects on either dental hygiene or dental health. So we're really thrilled that we were able to move the needle on both domains. And so to get a little bit more specific for you, children assigned to our parent training condition demonstrated significantly greater gains in twice daily toothbrushing relative to the children in the toolkit at both three and six months. Moreover, only children participating in parent training actually improved in their dental health, showing significant reductions in dental plaque at our immediate follow-up. We also had some secondary outcomes that we looked at, and we saw benefits there for parent training as well. So we saw our children participating in parent training show marked reduction in challenging behaviors during dental care, so challenging behaviors like aggression, relative to the toolkit at both three and six months, and parent training minimized the prog progression of dental cavities at our immediate follow-up, whereas cavities actually worsened in our toolkit over time. So these were really great and positive outcomes for parent training, but we also did see some benefits of the toolkit condition for children participating in our comparator. Those benefits were specific to dental hygiene and they were not as dramatic as we observed in our parent training condition, but this really also speaks to the benefit of disseminating psychoeducational resources and giving underserved families access to these dental hygiene materials. Yeah, it's one thing to give a box with, with all these tools, like toothpaste, floss, brushing, all that, and it's quite another to then say, okay, this is how you use it in a way that's manageable to families. Um, yeah, I, and Lisa, I would just add in, in plain and simple terms, it worked. <laughs> you know, um, the, the families really committed to this. They, they gave us eight weeks of their lives in a, in a concentrated way to focus on, on doing something that I think a lot of other people um, just take for granted with their kids. Um, yeah, it's a pain in the butt to get your toddler eventually to be um, a preschooler and, a, and an elementary school kid to be brushing their teeth twice a day and doing it well, right? Um, but now through the challenges of the, often the behavioral difficulties that come with autism, the, um, the insistences on doing things a certain way or the same way or, or challenges with, with um, uh, you know, disruptions in routine, um, all these things factored into just making a, a routine everyday habit that most of us take for granted harder for families of, of kids with autism. And then factor in the fact that these are families who in all other aspects of their lives are just trying to do it all with less. And um, 
it worked. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, our science, we would have liked it to work like for more families. We would have liked the, what we call the effect size to be even larger than it was. Um, but the fact that we, as Rachel said earlier, tested our, um, our intervention against another active intervention. And we did this with families that historically have been excluded from our research designs in the field and that we got an effect that we can statistically say is a real effect is, is remarkable and a testament to the whole research team, but also to the families that they showed up, they participated, they really wanted to make a change and they did. Um, and so we're excited about where this line of research can take us. And one of the other features that um, Dr. Fenning mentioned was it was a come all, come as you are. There was no exclusion for cognitive abilities or disabilities, challenging behaviors. Um, were there any differences in the outcome of, of kids, speaking of under-researched and under-recruited families as those with intellectual disabilities? Were, was there a difference in, in the outcome? Were you able to, to look at that? That is a great question. And that is actually something we're looking at. We are looking forward to further diving into our data to really answer these important questions because we agree that that is so critical to contextualizing and understanding how to interpret our findings and to think about how do we outreach to families and utilize this intervention and how can we refine this intervention going forward. You just mentioned a word um, that I was going to bring up next, which was any factors that you looked at so far, maybe this is an ongoing study, which is fine, say that, any factors that you noticed in this analysis that influenced the outcome? Yes, so we did look at a few things in our preliminary analyses of our primary trial outcomes. Uh, we did this in an exploratory way. We have some pre-specified mediation moderation hypotheses that we're currently investigating. Um, but we also wanted to know whether our changes in oral hygiene might have influenced our changes in oral health. And so that's something that we looked at in this preliminary study, and, or I should say in this initial study. And um, what we found was that our mediation results were not statistically significant, but when we considered the confidence interval, in other words, the range of this potential effect, that it did include effects that might be considered substantial when we were looking at behavior change in the context of dental care. In other words, we know that our parent training program improved children's behavior during dental care at home. And the nature of our results seems to suggest that this behavioral improvement may have been key to also improving oral hygiene. We think that this is likely because as parents were able to assist their children more effectively with dental hygiene, the quality of that dental hygiene also improved. And so one of the things we'd like to do going forward is consider other technologies, perhaps smart tooth technologies or the like that might help us to really index quality of toothbrushing beyond our current indicator of daily frequency. I'll, I'll add something that is, is sort of related, but sort of hangs out there for me in that um, a number of the families that we that were part of the study in the, in the um, participating in the study, 
had at some point or have had ABA therapy at home. And something that kept coming up as a theme, um, the anecdotally, we have not done this analysis yet. We haven't written on it. Um, it's something that I, I kind of keep bringing up to folks is that parents would say, gosh, when you break it down this specifically and give me a specific assignment that's manageable and I can fit in my day, everyday life, as Eric was describing, um, I now feel confident and I'm feeling capable of managing something in my child's life. And um, they would comment and say, hey, I did this. And I also decided to try that because this was going so well. And so it's not something that we really factored in. It just kind of kept popping up. And again, it's, you know, not being a, a strong researcher, it just kept, kept popping up where I would see. And I always wondered if this played a part of things as parents would seem to just in general feel, appear and describe being a little bit more confident and capable in managing something about their child's behavior. That's interesting. I hope you do follow that up because it would be interesting to know if even if parents who had previous experience with ABA are able to kind of more easily take some of those skills to different venues, not just the traditional um, ABA for communication, but, but some of the, the, the skills and techniques that they've learned to other sorts of um, practice. Is yeah, I mean, there something as simple as we did a component around antecedent strategies prior to going brushing your child's teeth, right? And I'm struck by the young boy I talked about who was nonverbal and not brush his teeth. And that mom came up on her own when we were going through that. Hey, he likes showers and takes showers five and six times a day. He likes water then. What if we use that environment to tackle toothbrushing? And, and, and so it was like in going through this, that component of the study, it was something that she herself kind of thought of and took on and going forward, his teeth were brushed in the shower, not the traditional go stand at, you know, stand in the bathroom sink kind of model. It was in the shower because he would open his mouth to let the water in. And we were able to get a toothbrush in there while he was doing that. And so that just always pops up into my mind. That's pretty genius. Although I do know a lot of people who do brush their teeth in yeah. the shower, believe it or not. So yeah. it's not, that was genius on the mother's part, but it's exactly. not. It's, it's not. And um, the level of confidence I saw yes. in her like, aha, I, what about this, right? They're the ones that are making the breakthroughs that are coming up with the great ideas. Um, so they don't feel like, you know, that they're just following someone else's direction in childcare. Is there anything else you guys would like to add about the study that we didn't talk about? Any future steps? Any things that you guys are thinking about doing in the future um, as either part of the Autism Cares Network or separately? Sure. Well, how much time do you have? No, we'll keep <laughs> it brief. <laughs> um, well, one thing I just want to add based upon um, the, what Kelly just raised was I think one of the key elements of our effort 
to meet these families where they're at and support them in this endeavor was individualizing our approach based upon the family and the child's presentation. But we were able to do that utilizing a manualized curriculum by identifying sort of a menu of options from which therapists could choose. So we spent a lot of time in designing our curriculum, thinking about variations that might be needed depending upon the nature of the circumstances or the nature of a particular parent's or child's needs. And so that was a really key ingredient of that engagement effort, but also the deployment of the intervention itself. And we saw families speak to that when they described the benefits of the approach, really understanding that the, the intervention could be tailored to what they needed, but that we as a study team could do so in the context of a manualized approach with high fidelity. And so a lot of effort went into creating a manual that could be flexibly adapted um, and flexibly implemented. So we think a big takeaway from our research is that intervening with a narrow slice of adaptive behavior to improve daily quality of life and health, focusing on specific discrete aspects of behavior change may have helped our intervention to seem more feasible, more achievable and more motivating for families. It also enhanced meaning. And we think that this is part of why we were able to see the effects that we obtained. We also focused on small wins. So these bit by bit advances in the pursuit of a larger goal. And again, in the context of the families we were working with, this seemed really an important point of connection and a way to establish not only rapport, but maintain momentum in the context of our intervention. Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna let Kelly have the last word, but um, for, for, for me, What's so important about Rachel just said is, look, there's nothing magical here. We we didn't invent a new treatment technique. Um, we we did want to make our research more accessible to more families. Um, we wanted to focus on one everyday adaptive health behavior, recognizing that there are dozens of others we could have focused on, um, and we used a technique that is just about efficient teaching. There's nothing really special about behavior therapy or what some people call ABA or applied behavior analysis. There's also nothing inherently bad about it um, as some people might be saying these days. What, what is important in what we do in behavioral parent training is teaching parents how to effectively teach. And then when stuff happens and you can't, um, keep going with what you had been doing or what you plan to do because your child's resistant or you have less time than you anticipated or another child needs you or another caregiver isn't available to help you. Um, what do you do then? Well, the whole point of behavioral parent training is to teach you how to manage the, the what then moments. And, and we were able to make that happen through this project in a systematic way in eight weeks that led to an important um, oral health outcome for kids. Um, just think what we could do if we tackled other important everyday health behaviors. And so what I really love about Rachel's perspective and where this research can go in the future is um, really improving uh, long-term health outcomes for kids by um, focusing on, as Kelly said earlier, the little bits every day 
as Rachel just said, finding the small wins and celebrating them, small win after small, small win after small win, eventually get you to the Super Bowl, you know? Um, and so uh, I, I was just really excited about what we were able to do with this project and what it means for what we might be able to do with behavioral parent training um, for other health behaviors. Kelly? Agreed, you all said it beautifully. Um, you know, if kids are brushing their teeth now because of this work and we have, we can show people that you just using the techniques work, right? It, the strategies are the strategies and you apply it to a small part of your life and you, you know, work your way through and you get to the Super Bowl like you described. We're excited to have people hear about it. Well, thank you guys for all describing it. And the link to the paper will be in the podcast summary. Thank you all for, for participating in this. And I, I said this before, I think this is a huge, huge accomplishment for the field, that this is a very influential paper. I'm glad it was published. I'm glad um, it's out there for people to read. And um, I'm certainly thankful that you could help describe it on this week's podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We're really thrilled to be here. Show me your teeth. Tell me when. Show me your teeth. Open your mouth, boy. Show me your teeth. Show me what you got. Show me your teeth.